from Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 252. Today's show is brought to you by Lumen 5, Bombus, and Text Expander from Smile. My name is Mike Hurley, and I am joined, as always, by my Summer of Fun podcast Summer partner, of Fun! Mr. Jason Snell. Hi, Jason Snell. Hello, Mike Hurley. It's good to be here for the Summer of Fun. It's July. Can you feel it? It's July. I can feel it. Jason, we promised on our last episode some super special guests for today's episode. Would you like to introduce said special guests? Okay, yes. We have two special guests, and this is going to inform what we're talking about today. First off, these are both Relay FM hosts who I have multi-decades of history with, uh, host of the Parallel Podcast, and my former colleague at Mac User Magazine back in the day, Shelley Brisbane. Hello. Hello. It's nice that you invited the old people here on the show. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna we're gonna show Mike how it was done back in our day when podcasts <laughs> were were just rants on the sidewalk. I'm just sitting here on my lawn waiting for somebody to try and get on it and see what I might do. <laughs> now, now Shelley, you and I uh work for Mac User and we had a columnist, this uh fellow uh it's Andy Inatko is what I think yeah, how you, do pronounce you pronounce that. that? Yeah. It is. It's hard to pronounce or spell and he is the host of the material podcast here on relay fm as well as a regular uh panelist on mac break weekly and a visitor to wgbh boston's public radio hello did i get it all right there andy yeah yep uh, I, um, I talk about for half hour about technology on uh, npr here in boston about once a week and it usually comes out pretty much okay i do gesture a lot with my hands even though it's simply radio yeah. but over the past couple of years i'm kind of winding that down Oh, it's uh, you know just calm down. I've been in the audience for that, so that's pretty good. That's a that's a nice yes. uh, nice thing. So we have my my pals who I have known since the nineties uh, here, and we're going to talk. Uh, J- Jason, uh, can, yes. I, can I can Andy? I say my usual line? It's mm-hmm. traditional. Sure. That I've known I've known Jason for so long that he is the man who taught me how to boldface in HTML. It's true. It's true. Uh, that was back when we were still learning what a web browser was. Um, so we are going to talk about Apple and the many transitions in Apple's history. Uh, but before we do that, I think we should answer a Snell Talk question, Mike. We should. We Just because we have guests, we do not issue from tradition around here. It's the summer of fun, but it's not the summer of no, of no, uh, no tradition, Jason. So we're yeah. going to go with a hashtag Snell Talk question from Gordon. And I thought I was looking through our list and I was like, let me pick something which can which kind of fits in with today's episode. So I went for something which is uh, pre-OS 10. And the idea of the question comes from Gordon. What is your favorite app that you still use regularly that dates back to the pre-OS 10 days? Mine is Graphic. Converter. Jason, do you have an answer for this? I actually do have a few answers. I'm wondering if perhaps I should defer to my uh, guests if they have <laughs> favorite apps that date back to the, the pre-OS 10 period. Andy and Shelley, do you have favorite apps from the olden times? I do, actually. I, I like Graphics Converter. I still use it. Graphic Converter, pardon me. I still use it. But I startled James Thompson when I met him about a year ago, and I said, James, I really love Drag Thing. And he was <laughs> like, Really? As in, that's been a long time, and that's a 32-bit app. Yes. I, I don't use it all the time, but I use it on a laptop that I have because that's how I like to see my icons. That so, extra squeak was about, really? It's a 32-bit app and won't be updated <laughs> and will stop working in the fall. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, and he made me aware of that, and I'm, I'm trying to uh, let myself down easily, get some other solutions that are more modern, but I, I always enjoy drag thing. All right. That's a, that's a great one. Uh, Andy? I feel like there's one that Jason and I both absolutely adore, and as 
a sign of my friendship. I should leave that for Jason. No, but I, I, had, that I, I had you go first for a reason. Okay. Okay. I've got, case, I got another one in my back pocket. Okay. In that case, it has to be BB Edit, which is the it, – it's it, BB Edit is a program – technically a programmer's text editor, but it has been powering – tech writing and all kinds of writing behind the scenes for eons because I used it today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure that when uh, when Jason taught me that, oh, here's how you boldface something, it was code, HTML code I typed into a BB Edit document to create that formatting. And up until fairly recently, it was what I wrote every single one of like two or three weekly columns on because it's a text editor. It gets out of your way. It's 100% reliable. It is fine-tuned, extremely sleek efficient code and the people who create it are awesome people and it's like every time that i every time that i use it i feel like i'm smart for choosing to use bb edit and i'm i'm pleased i'm also pleased that it's it's sort of like when you have that 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 rice cooker that you've used since college that it's like okay everything's okay this this is definitely my MacBook because look I've got BB Edit on it just like every MacBook and PowerBook I have had it is a, it is a touchstone of reality for for a lot of people who write on the Macs. Yeah, I wrote a column last week where I referred to BB Edit as the app of Theseus in that it has gone through so many <laughs> transitions as we're going to talk about here that uh, there's nothing left from what was there at the at the start, <laughs> but it's also never had one of those schisms where there's a new version and it's completely incompatible with the old version and doesn't do what the old version did it's never right. done that it's always just kind of kept evolving with the times which is delightful it, rather than uh, that simile i would use the that the the old japanese wooden temple that said this temple has been here for for 800 years like wow the wood looks fresh well yeah because every time a piece of wood <laughs> rots out we replace it so basically there's nothing in that older than 50 years and it's like but it's always been it's always been this temple it's always been there it's never blown up it's never caught on fire it's never uh, no one has ever <laughs> There's never been a change of command and said, you know what? Let's turn this into a coffee house. And it'll be like a coffee house with like a wine bar on it. And then they had to go back to being a temple because that was a terrible idea. It's been like consistency often. My answer is going to be, and this is an app that had a little bit of a schism, but it is essentially doing the same thing with the same author. And that's default folder from St. Clair uh. Software, which I remember downloading as shareware in college, and I still use it. And actually, one of my more proud moments of the last couple of years is I was using it at one point a few weeks ago and thought to myself, hey, you know, there's something default folder doesn't do. I actually had an idea for a feature in default folder, and I emailed John, the developer of default folder, and said, "Is this? could you do this? Is this possible? Am I missing this feature? And I had one of these stranger things. It does happen occasionally uh, when you write about this stuff, which is the next day, uh, John sent me a beta build with my feature implemented. Okay. And uh, it's great. And the nice thing is that I've heard from several people afterward when it was rolled into the official kind of beta releases of default folder saying that they actually wanted that feature and are glad that it's there so that's nice but uh default fold folder for those who don't know lets you set uh when you choose open or save in a document in any app you can set what the default folder is that you're saving into and you can set it per app you can override it there are a bunch of things where you can click on like a finder window that's behind and it will switch to that finder window and a new feature you may not be aware of is it can now actually use uh, a script to determine based on current conditions where you want to save something. Oh, wow. It's a new feature. I, I, whoever thought of that feature must is be a genius. genius. 
So that's mine. Well, I didn't even know that this thing was still in existence, and I've got the web page open. Either. And I've, now I've, I remember using it a long time ago, but I yeah. just assumed it was gone. Thank, thank you, web page. I think I will try it for free for thirty days. <laughs> thank you so much to Gordon for the hashtag Snow Talk question. I'm pretty proud of my choice for this it's week. Good one. Seems good choice. Very good one for for our panel here today. You can always send in a question for us to open an episode of Upgrade with the hashtag. Snell talk. So, Jason, you mentioned um, transitions. Transitions is one of the big dis- discussion points that we're going to talk about today because Apple are, you know, we've been talking about this over the last couple of weeks as we move uh, into Catalina with Catalyst apps and then looking forward to Swift UI and what that could do for Apple's platforms, as well as looking at the introduction of iPadOS. There is a lot of stuff going on right now. I mean, that's not even beginning to mention the fact that we could be moving from Intel to arm in the near future so as a way to kind of provide maybe a little bit of context and background for these upcoming transitions it might be a good idea to look at the past because apple has been through many transitions from personnel to architecture to software so you wanted to assemble our group today to discuss that right yes the group don't don't call them the group of elders we're not going to use that (laughs) word uh, you we, said it. We are uh, no. We're I really more of a council, really. Yes, that's <laughs> right. We were consulting with the those who have seen. Well, it turns out, Mike, if you stand around uh, long enough and just watch, you become a witness to history. Uh, sometimes it's boring <laughs> history. Sometimes it's exciting history, but it's history. And uh, Shelley and Andy and I have been standing roughly near the corner of technology <laughs> and liberal arts for a few decades as the parades have gone up and down the street. <laughs> And uh, and I feel like that gives us a, a perspective that, it, you know, again, I don't feel like I've been I've been standing on this corner for 25 years, but I really have. <laughs> and and every now and then we go through one of these transitions and I realize I'm talking to somebody like you, Mike, who has not even, you know, didn't even do the, the PowerPC to Intel transition, let alone the, you know, transition to PowerPC or the OS 9 to OS 10 transition or any of these other transitions. And I realize, oh, you know, a lot of people don't have the context of what Apple has done in the past when they've had to go through something like this. I've got a list here. So I I think we should go through them. Um, and you guys contributed to this list as well. Um, going way back, uh, I like this one. I haven't really thought about it. Originally, the Mac was a self-contained item. It was the the original Mac and then the 128 and, you know, it became the 512 and there was the Plus and the, and the SE. But uh, there was that moment where Apple made a box that you could attach a color monitor <laughs> to. And that was a Mac 2. And uh, I remember... It was a little bit later. Color Macs were out, but I hadn't used any of them. I remember that first time that I used a Mac that was capable of conceiving of colors and used, you know, could only, didn't have a built-in display. And it was definitely a very weird kind of transition. Yeah, particularly because one of the reasons why, uh, there are a lot of reasons why a lot of people and users in the industry didn't take the Mac seriously at first. Well, a, because you couldn't word process a document longer than nine pages. Okay. But it really did look, it didn't look like any other computer. It looked like, as intended, a, an appliance, a friendly little pal, uh, that's on, that's on your desk. And when you, uh, and when you had to trans, it was kind of, it was interesting to finally react to a Mac that was a box 
with a TV looking screen on top of the box. And it was because it, that's what all computers since the, that I'd ever used looked like. And not only that, but it's felt like the face that I'd been looking at for the previous X number of years was this like 500 pixel wide black and white bloxy face. And when you're looking at a color image, it's like when a friend that you've known your entire you've known for 10 years but has never ever not had a beard suddenly comes back from vacation and he's shaved and it's like I know that's still Doug but this is a very weird form of Doug that I'm going to have to get used to. Well, and for most people the screen got bigger because you could attach a radius display to an SE30 something like that but for most people I think the 9-inch screen on the plus sized which is the first Mac I had uh, was what people thought of as a Mac screen and so even if you just had the 13-inch RG GB on the Mac 2, you were looking at a bigger image, you were looking at a color image, and of course, the big deal of expansion. Those little handle-held Macs could be expanded in sort of weird and kludgy ways. They even You could even get a hard drive in a Mac Plus, which I always thought was going to break at some point uh, because somebody would you know put it down wrong. But with the Mac 2, it was meant to be expanded. You open it up and there were slots and you didn't have to have Torx wrench and you didn't have to do all these crazy things and you know pray to the gods of, of, uh, of hardware repair if you wanted to put memory or a drive in your computer. It did definitely change the context in that one of the criticisms of the Mac in the earliest days was that it was this appliance. Ironically, I mean, this is sometimes I think the iPad is similar to the concept of the original Mac. That's why I always I always felt like Steve Jobs was was trying to push to that same place, which is I want this to be just a thing that you carry around and you don't feel that it's super technical and it is that computer for the rest of us. And the Mac was criticized, as so many Apple products are, for being not quite what everybody expects from the the category. And uh, it was all in one. Um, it was had a, had a mouse. It was strangely shaped. All of these things. And the Mac 2, when that came in, it was almost like Apple saying, all right, we hear you. Do you want you want a computer box that you attach things to? We can give you that too. But uh, the original and that definitely my first Mac was a, an SE, so I definitely was somebody who was entering the Mac through that little nine inch diagonal screen, black and white screen. Which I, I think about it now, and I can't even believe what a wide world it opened up to me in that teeny tiny uh, little square, a little rectangle. But it did, and then and then Mac two, yeah, we had a at my college newspaper we had a, a Mac two. And eventually we had a Mac 2 FX, which was uh, pretty, I remember how it sounded because <laughs> the, the hard drive ticked yeah. and it was so fast. But, um, uh, you know, but for me at home, you know, in my dorm room and all that, it was still that nine inch screen. I used to encounter Mac 2s in unexpected places. Once the Mac 2 came out, I, w- I saw it on a trade show at a super com- a supercomputer trade show of all things as a front end to a very large computer doing data visualization. And I saw it at an office in IBM because we have to figure out how this Mac thing works, but it didn't really make any sense until the Mac 2 came along. And so it felt like, and obviously Apple did this intentionally, they did all the things that you have to do to make a computer expandable and, uh, you know, accessible to all the things that, that, that it is with, that other computers are. And it felt like that gave people permission to acquire Macs, even if they weren't going to make them their primary computer, it was a computer that could live in the same environment with other kinds of machines. 
Yeah, I think the the first time I saw a Mac II, I'm pretty sure was before it was even released because uh, I was a freshman in college and I used to hang out in like the graduate school's uh, graphics lab, uh, computer graphics lab. And they had one in like Los Grandes boards stage where it was literally – it was a table with Mac II boards like just all wired together that they were writing code. Either I – don't, I don't know if they were uh, developing code – for it for Apple or whether they gave they were given an early version of it so that they could see what it could do. But it was weird to see this thing that dominated, <laughs> dominated like a, a, it looked like a real computer, even though it didn't have a case on it, as opposed to, oh, this is this is my this is my friend, the Macintosh. This is my Mac Plus. Uh, and yeah, it was it really was a, a moment where Apple was realized that they weren't going to get to that. They weren't going to get the Mac to that stage where it's so affordable that everybody can buy one. It's not going to be like the Apple II where families could sort of afford to have one in the house as the home computer that was always – they were never going to get to that price point. So the only – if they couldn't go down, they had to go up and really sell it as uh, – for desktop publishing, a 9-inch screen is not that great for laying out a newspaper. But hey, we'll give you not only processing power to lay out that page but the ability to just plug in a huge display as opposed to, like Shelley said, crack open that case – clip it was uh, a couple of these displays it was literally like a spring clip that you would clip onto the cpu to get at the address lines some of them you you send them i think you would send you would send them your motherboard they would send back a mother a new motherboard that had professionally soldered in stuff so the ability to simply unplug this plug in that you're good it felt like it wasn't a bad transition but it really was like the the hippie gets the haircut and (laughs) and and doesn't like switch to a three-piece business suit but realizes that Perhaps I should start wearing shoes instead of sandals everywhere. So um, now one of the funny things about living through some amount of history is that you do get to witness this thing. You don't realize when you haven't lived through much of it, which is this flattening of history. And I, I don't you know, want to take the time right now to talk about it, but it's not like there weren't other transitions that happened in the early days of the Mac. System 6 to System 7 was an enormous yeah. one back when like, there was really no ability to run more than one app at once unless you use multi-finder and it was this whole complicated thing and system seven really was a dramatic change but i, I want to forward a little bit uh to a time when i actually was at mac user so in my the, the, the beginning of my professional career um at mac user we had a column for a while in the letters column which i edited called ask dr power mac and it was literally <laughs> just stefan samoji who worked at mac user back then uh reassuring people <laughs> <laughs> about how terrifying the 68,000 to P- PowerPC processor transition <laughs> was going to work. And for those who don't remember those olden days, but maybe if you remember the Intel transition, it was a similar thing where there were computers with new chips and old software written for old chips. And Apple did, I think, a, a tremendous job in that era of figuring out a way to translate the instructions for those old apps so that they worked on PowerPC processors. So you have an old version of Word built for the 68000 series, and you brought it over to a Power Mac, and it ran. And it was a little slower sometimes, depending on the computer you were coming from, but it actually ran. And it that was, I would say, the biggest... Certainly, it was the first one I saw, but it was a big hardware transition. It was one of the first that Apple had to do on that front. And the lesson I took away from that was that there was a lot of fear, but that when handled correctly, um, people would end up being surprised that it wasn't as bad as they thought. 
that that I don't know if you have if you have different recollections of of that power PC transition, but I just remember it being a lot. We, we wrote a lot of words about something that ended up being not nearly as painful as we feared. I think so, and and I think for somebody out there who was buying Macs. Maybe maybe not a Mac user reader, but somebody who was out there buying Macs, they weren't thinking about it in the same way or to the same extent that we were. And Apple, at the same time that they made the when they made the power PC transition, they transitioned to vastly different hardware. So it wasn't like, well, your LC will now run a PPC chip. It was here's the Power Mac 6100, here's the 7100, and onward. And so. I think for some people that experience was hidden. Sure, you'd get the dialog box that would say this is a 68K app, but it felt like there was a less there was less of a requirement that you be involved in it unless you were just super curious about it or maybe you had a specific piece of software that wasn't going to work. But I don't even remember a lot of that. It seems like that was a relatively smooth transition. It mostly just worked. Yeah, I, I think Shelley's absolutely right. I think most most humans, like most civilians, uh, they didn't really notice a difference. They just noticed, I think that eventually they noticed that some of their software was running slowly and some of their software was running super well. And they didn't uh, didn't really realize they didn't really realize that what they were running was uh, sixty eight thousand uh, Motorola software in emulation, and some were being transitioned into Intel native apps. And that's exactly how well Apple did it. It's uh, it, this could be a case study in how to manage uh, fears that anybody's going anybody's going to be feeling in any large moment of transition if you can if you can do everything you can so that they don't notice anything even though there's a titanic change happening under the floorboards that's exactly the way to do it so sometimes i think um in pr- in principle it's always a good idea to inform people and tell people and make sure things are done out in the open but oftentimes i find myself over explaining a transition or over explaining a concept that I, when I'm when I finally like slap myself in the in the head and at eight and a half minutes in my little monologue, realize that actually this is not going to affect your lives at all because it's gonna it's gonna affect the lives of everybody working at Apple who is going to have to work on this and make sure that it works properly. But if they do their jobs okay, you're just going to notice that uh, some of your some of your apps are going to be slow, some are going to be fast, and after a year, all of your apps are going to be fast. It's really this chain, right, where it starts with Apple, it goes to the developers of apps and then it goes to the user and at, if executed properly apple does provides the tools and the infrastructure and the developers are able to do their updates and you know if it all goes well the user doesn't notice anything right like that is the goal is you oh here's a new update and we mentioned you know bb edit earlier uh here's a new update and and they don't need to know the users don't need to know that oh well behind Mm -hmm. the scenes i had to do a whole lot because apple changed this thing and that thing and all that in the end the user just wants to use the thing and and if if the developers get the tools to um do their updates properly it can be an invisible transition which in my mind is the best transition to have (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's it's you have to get a column out, and maybe it'll pop into my mind that oh my god, Apple's going to be changing the, the the their web renderer for Safari from KHTML to something else. It's like actually, nobody who actually reads this is going to notice. Nobody who reads this is should care, and maybe you're just going to be scaring people into thinking that the rug is about to be pulled out from under you. And that process was made easier by the fact that Apple was so involved in 
making PowerPC a chip that they could use for their computer, their operating system. And it wasn't like Apple said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to buy a chip from somebody and I'm going to write my operating system to run on it. They, they were much more intimately involved in the yeah. hardware side than that. And so that made it easy for them. I mean, it doesn't diminish what they were able to accomplish for the user, but it does indicate that they had that it was smart of them to make the choice they did about how they developed that hardware. Yeah, and and I'm just remembering that um, I think they made the announcement shortly before that year's Mac Hack Developer Conference, which was which was WWDC before Apple thought to actually hold the WWDC. So I was in like a hotel room in Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, excuse me, hotel uh, hotel with the in Dearborn, Michigan, with about 200, 300 like super super hardcore developers, including many who worked for Apple, uh, and and got hear so much opinion and so much talking about how this transition could possibly be made. I think they actually had a piece of Intel hardware, maybe, uh, and they were. And they were banging on it and trying to figure out how to make it work. And it was a weird time because Apple was really trying to make the developers feel as happy about this as they're trying to assuage uh, the, any guilty feelings that the, uh, that the users might be having. It's interesting when we talk about chip transitions, and we're, we'll talk about um, in our next segment, I want to talk about a lot of these sort of Steve Jobs comes back to Apple transitions because that was definitely he – was, he was making change everywhere he could possibly do it, and, and including ultimately PowerPC to Intel. But I think it's interesting when – Andy, you mentioned PowerPC. There was the PowerPC Alliance, which was Apple, IBM, and Motorola, the AIM Alliance. And that goes back to a thing that has been part of Apple's DNA since the beginning, which is trying to go its own way. And so going from the Motorola 68000 to the PowerPC, it was very much like we're going to go to this new chip architecture that we're helping drive. Uh, Whereas the Intel transition was interesting because that was uh, basically their partners let them down. (laughs) You know, IBM (laughs) had let them down on the PowerPC side and they ended up just taking chips off the shelf from Intel. And as we think about Apple going to ARM... It's funny how that happens. (laughs) They're they're going back the other way now where it's like, oh yeah, we've been let down again. Maybe we should uh, take more control over this. So I I definitely am seeing parallels there. But but, uh, Mike has reappeared. (laughs) So maybe it's time for us to take a break now before we go get into um, some CEO transitions and Steve Jobs coming back to Apple. Today's episode is brought to you by Bombas. You might not think about socks often. And if you're anything like me here you're a busy person surely you don't have tons of time to think about what goes on your feet right but let me tell you why i think you should think about bombers we are in the summer of fun and summer typically means shorts or maybe you're not wearing long pants anymore so maybe you want some some shorter socks and what i like about bomber socks is they have a bunch of ankle sock options that are colorful I seem to find that most of the options that I can find in ankle socks are either white or black, but I have lots of colorful regular size, full size socks. I want colorful ankle socks as well, and they have a ton of really wonderful patterns and options, and you can buy big packs of them as well. Um, Bomber socks are super comfortable. They're really, really wonderful, and that's one of the reasons that I think you should take a look at them. Simply put, Bombas make the most comfortable socks ever. They're made from super soft natural cotton, and every pair comes comes with arch support, a seamless toe, and a cushion footbed that is comfortable without being too thick they have tons of great colors and patterns and lengths and styles so they look great in the gym at the office out in the town at the beach no matter where you are no matter what type of the socks you want to put on your feet they have got the option for you your feet are dreaming of bomber socks right now and for every purchase you make i love this bombers donate a pair to someone in need and they have donated tons and tons of socks and items of clothing to people that need them their website tells me right now 
and nearly 22 million items donated, which I think is just really, really cool. So go and buy your Bomber socks today by going to bombas.com slash upgrade. That's 20% off your first purchase when you go there as well. That's bombas.com slash upgrade for 20% off. Open your browser right now. Your feet will thank you for it. Once again, that's bombas.com slash upgrade. Our thanks to Bombas for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. I wrote in our notes the the CEO transitions. It is definitely a, a thing, but uh, most people don't think of most of them because there was sort of the you know John Scully came in and Steve Jobs left Apple, and then after Scully got kicked out, there was a um, disaster parade of <laughs> failed CEOs, and then Steve Jobs came back, and then uh, obviously Steve Jobs got very ill, and uh, just before he passed away, he handed the keys to Apple to Tim Cook, but. You know, CEO transitions can be meaningful. They aren't always meaningful. I I was definitely a young editor at Mac World or at Mac User back in the day, watching the uh, that parade of, of problematic CEOs <laughs> walk through, and you know, it was sort of like, well, maybe Michael Spindler will be the answer, and the answer was no. He he no no. Bill Emilio, well, only in the sense that he found Steve Jobs. Um, that that sometimes CEO transitions aren't meaningful but steve jobs as a personality with a and a person with a f- strong philosophy definitely transitioning to him and away from him um are are moments that you can draw a line and 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 at least try to intuit what uh what the, they brought to the table as a ceo and i had a list here of the steve jobs returns transitions that happened in a very tumultuous time uh in the early part of this century, primarily late late nineties as well, um, the uh, the clones got killed. Apple obviously brought in OS ten, which is how Steve Jobs got imported into the organization because it was based on the uh, next OS. Uh, so the classic OS transition to OS ten. Ending in a funeral, by the way, at WWDC, where <laughs> Steve Jobs had a funeral with an OS nine box in it and put it down below the stage um the imac transition which sometimes doesn't get enough credit which is when apple took all the old ports that were standards on the mac and basically kicked them to the curb and said we're just going to do usb now um then a little bit later the intel transition and uh and i think from a developer standpoint uh one of the things that also happened is uh, as a part of the os 10 transition there was really this transition to apple's own tools which were based on next tools and this is essentially interface Builder and Xcode, which over the course of the time with the OS 10 and Intel transitions, all the stuff that was happening with like uh, Code Warrior from MetroWorks, which was the definitive PowerPC development environment, all kind of faded away because Apple wanted you on its own development tools. So Steve Jobs did all of that, and I know that's a lot to kind of uh, to kind of cover, but I think I think it's interesting. What what I would say about Steve Jobs is the advantage of having somebody like Steve Jobs who knew the company well, but was outside the company and felt no ownership in current products. I feel like in some ways that's the best case scenario for something like this, where you get somebody who knows you well, but doesn't have any ego invested in any of the details to come in and say, Mm-mm, no, we're going to kill the Newton and we're going to kill uh, open dock and we're going to <laughs> move to this new operating system. And we're going to start talking, start doing Intel builds of it in case we need to dump the power PC and we're going to get rid of Mac serial and scuzzy and like, and Steve Jobs, was able to do that and you know that was a tumultuous five years but 
Apple came out and the Mac, I think, came out stronger for it. Yeah, absolutely. I think the one of the key things that Steve did was to take a look at Apple as a single organism, as opposed to thinking of it as a company that makes this product line, they make the Newton product line, they make this product line. Uh, they, this, uh, one of the most important things that he did, I think, was simply, here is what we are here to do, and we're not going to do anything that has nothing to do with that. The, uh, famously, uh, he, uh, at uh, one of his keynotes, uh, he collapsed the entire Mac product line into a grid of two boxes by two boxes. We are going to have Portable Macs, we're going to have desktop Macs. The Macs can be either consumer grade or professional grade. One, two, three, four. That's all that's all we're gonna do. We're not gonna have the Centris 6152C with the special option of a DV. It's it's going to be simplified. We're there they tried doing everything. That didn't work. So let's focus on the stuff that we can do. And you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right about the iMac being important too. Uh, not Simply because of the fact that they made so many groundbreaking changes, like the first uh, com- computer to absolutely commit to USB and absolutely commit uh, to uh, to optical drives. But uh, remember that this came at the tail of so many indistinguishable, unremarkable beige boxes. And Apple had gone from being this exciting uh, product development company, this exciting design company, to something just made other boxes that you saw at Sears Roebuck that was no, that didn't look really any different or any more exciting than anything else out there. And so you suddenly see that it was such a true uh, return to form that we are going to quote the original classic Mac by having here is a one friendly box with a big handle deep into the back of it so you can pick it up and carry it some places but it's going to be like it was inflated out of latex and it's going to be colors so freaky we have to invent new names for them and it was so influential just from industrial design that you could buy waffle makers in a range of iMac colors not from Apple of course but it was so influential and if, if even if it were successful or unsuccessful as a computer as a statement to the world especially to investors and to people who are supposed to support this stuff that Apple has not given up there is something that you liked about Apple even if you didn't always necessarily invest in their hardware that thing is back. We are not going to become another indistinguishable tech company like Gateway or Compact. We are going to do something that only we can do. I think it's worth pointing out that those transitions toward Steve Jobs and toward the iMac and USB and all those things, while in hindsight, were absolutely right, were very bloody when they were happening. Absolutely. And, you know, Apple had started to go to clones because it seemed like if they wanted the Mac operating system to spread, they had to do it. But that went away, and there were people that were worried about that. Well, is Apple going to be able to survive just making all the hardware itself? Uh, OS ten, what became Mac OS ten, took a lot of years because yep. even though that was you know the based on uh, Next Step early on, it, it was four years before they I think three or four years before they actually got an OS out there. The iMac. Okay, it's it's really cool looking, uh, but it's got a hockey puck mouse. What is this crazy USB thing? And I don't think anybody who said that uh, was particularly enamored of the old Apple-specific ports. It was just that it was unclear to people that that was the direction that was needed, that they needed to go. And so while, as I say, in hindsight... It all was it was always right, and then Steve, you know, made mistakes along the way. But he the the his hit rate, given what had happened to Apple in the the mid nineties, was pretty darn high. I think it's also important as we're praising a lot of this stuff is that then as now uh, Apple has the ability to make these choices that 
inflict a lot of pain on users, such as, congratulations, none of your old Mac peripherals will work with this new iMac. Oh, and by the way, you pretty much have to buy an external DV, uh, uh, floppy drive because good luck good luck uh, storing your, your data someplace else, on and on and on. They could do this because they always had the, that last way to end an argument saying, well, are you going to switch to Windows? No? Okay. Well, then that's all we're offering you. And so it's, so it's one thing to say, oh, see, they're the only ones who had the vision to really do this. Like, no, other computers had it. You just didn't have to buy the one machine that this one company was pushing on you. And yes, they were eventually proven right. Uh, but there's so, but I don't think that in a competitive, if Apple was at the size that it was at the time and they were, and users really did have options, they would not uh, only a certain percentage of them would have chosen to buy a computer that is as cool but also impractical as the original iMac. Also, the original iMac was one of a product line, right? Like the the transition was slow enough that like yeah. the pro users weren't buying the original iMac. So right. it was this kind it of was just the iMac. oddity consumer model. And they it had happened over time. So the the higher part other parts of the market didn't have to respond as immediately. But you're both right. It was a really tumultuous time. And sometimes I look back on it and I think, well, the advantage of having somebody like Steve Jobs in charge is that he, he would be like, uh, he'd say, well, I know this is going to bother people, but I don't care and they'll get over it. <laughs> Whereas Microsoft in that era seemed, despite all of their power, they were petrified that their product would be rejected by their users and not incorrectly because we saw, uh, you know, over the next 10 years that Microsoft tried to introduce larger changes to their ecosystem, and they were generally just rejected by their user base. So they're you know, still struggling today, yeah, like with this type of stuff, right? Like this is still a thing that is a problem for them. Well, and Apple spent before Steve Jobs came back, and after he did, I guess you could could say they probably spent ten years or so really branding themselves against Windows. They don't do that in the same way at all today. But at that time, they could say, as Andy pointed out look, we're the Mac, you have the advantage of this user interface that is, that is comfortable, that is likable, that is something somebody who hates Windows can be comfortable with. And, and Apple leaned into it. And so did we writing magazines lean into it as well. Yeah. And the other part is that people have an emotion, Apple users have an emotional response to Apple that uh, Windows users do certainly not have with uh, with Windows devices. It's uh, the, the, uh, Windows is the Windows and Windows PCs are really the Toyota Corolla of uh, of computing. They're for people who I I really just want something where I get in and I get into the driveway. I turn the key. It starts up. It gets me to work safely, and then at five o'clock, it gets me home safely. I'm not a lover of this thing. I want it to be practical, and I really can't tell the difference between this eighteen thousand dollar car you're showing me and this thirty eight thousand dollar car you're showing me. Despite the fact that the thirty eight thousand dollar car is much more innovative and has much more cool stuff in it, uh, so Windows people are not are, are fickle that way because they're just buying uh, they're buying a bag of flour. That's really all they're buying. Whereas Apple, it kind of disappoints us if Apple doesn't do something that's a little bit alarming at times, because that's kind of what they're in the job for. And that's their, that's their job to do something that are that makes me think, wow, I don't know if they should have let people into the new spaceship campus before the industrial adhesives in the carpet had 
finished off-gassing because that was a really odd choice they just made in that product. You want them to surprise you and challenge you, but also sometimes they make mistakes. And it is, you know, whenever I'm evaluating something that Apple does, there's this moment of like, well, I like that they did it. We'll see. Like the the MacBook, if we take the the 12-inch MacBook as an example, like... Uh, and the, the original MacBook Air was like this, too, where it's sort of like, well, I this is an opinionated product design. They've made some very clear decisions and trade-offs that other people would not necessarily make. And it leads to a product that's very interesting. And depending on your priorities could be exactly what you're looking for, or depending on your priorities is exactly the wrong product to exist at all. And, you know, then you just kind of have to wait and see. And with the MacBook Air... I think that, uh, you know, it it turned out that it was in the right direction, but wasn't all quite there. And they needed to take another stab at it before they really got it right. And they finally did get it, I think, exactly right. It just took them as somebody who had that original MacBook Air and you could really only use it uh, in a meat locker because if it got too warm, it stopped <laughs> working and shut down its course. But um, they did get there eventually. And with the MacBook, it's the same way, like, you know, among a bunch of other products, people love that little thing. And yeah, it only has one port and there are a lot of people for whom it's not appropriate. But but at the time, it's very hard to say, is it, do I just not like this keyboard or is this keyboard a disaster? And you can't tell. I can tell. Except for it's Andy. It's a disaster. Only Andy can tell. <laughs> well, now we can tell. Now we can see it. My dislike for the lack of travel on that keyboard blinded me to the <laughs> all the other problems <laughs> that, that existed. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. Um. Mike, should we take another break? I think that sounds like a great idea. Today's episode is also brought to you by our friends over at Text Expander. Text Expander lets you insert words, phrases, forms, templates, and so much more with just a couple of key clicks everywhere you type. You can give your productivity a boost with Text Expander, as those snippets will turn into things that you often type, and you can use them everywhere you type. Your time is super valuable. Life's too short to constantly retype what could be a snippet, and it's so, so easy. It's even easier than ever before to make your Text Expander snippets they recently introduced a visual editor which is even more beautiful and will allow you to with just a simple drag and drop and just moving stuff around you can really easily and clearly see the snippets that you want to make companies use text expander for teams which is their like their team solution where you can share snippets with multiple people for support customer support for reports and email anywhere that text is needed to be typed consistently and accurately which is most places i would assume uh, text expander users with text expander for teams use that product we use it here at Relay FM. There's a bunch of us now, and we're sharing stuff that we need to be sending out in emails and just the way that we want things to be formatted, like file names on contracts. We use Text Expander for all of that stuff so we can ensure consistency wherever we need it. Text Expander is available for Mac OS, Windows, iPhone, iPad, and Chrome. It's everywhere. And listeners of this show can get 20% off their first year. I am a huge fan of Text Expander. It is something that I install everywhere I possibly can. I have it on my Windows gaming PC, so every now and then, because there's things that I type, it's like, hang on a second, that doesn't seem right. There's just a bunch of characters there. Was well, because I'm just I'm used to having my Text Expander snippets all expanded for me automatically. If you go to textexpander.com/podcast right now, you can get 20% off your first year of a Text Expander subscription. That's textexpander.com/podcast, and it will also help support this show. Our thanks to Text Expander from Smile for their support of this show and Relay FM. All right, so the the last transition I want to talk about before we uh, we do the tech industry pivot and talk about where we go from here is a 
mindset and perception transition. I think it actually goes along uh, about the same time as the transition from Steve Jobs to Tim Cook. It precedes it a little bit, but I think that it's all kind of of a kind in in this late model um, Apple that we we deal with now, where we've got. <laughs> Uh, you know, those of us who wrote about Apple and, and, and used Apple stuff in the 90s, like the default mode then was that Apple was doomed. I have a T-shirt that says I've been a Mac user since Apple was doomed. Um, and boy, those were dark days like Mac user, which we've mentioned several times where we all uh, wrote and edited and, and did, you know, went to parties and things like that. Andy didn't get to go to the parties because he was freelance and remote. <laughs> but um, we had them. And, uh, well, you went to the parties in Boston, probably. We had parties at Macworld Expo in Boston, too. Anyway, it died. That magazine died in 1997 because the publishers of the Mac magazines knew that Apple was about to go out of business. And they wanted to share their loss so that they d- didn't both take a bath. And then, you know, mm. within six months, they realized they had made a horrible mistake, but it was too late to back <laughs> out of it. But that was it. It was a a dark time. Apple was falling apart. And then over the next decade, you know, we got the iMac, we got the iPod, and then ultimately we got the iPhone. And the story of this decade is really that Apple is no longer the doomed, uh, you know, misunderstood uh, edge case niche product vendor for the for the, the, you know, the small group who cares about it and more that Apple's huge and powerful and rich and unstoppable. And it's a huge shift that I, I would say also coincides to the perception of Apple is the Mac becoming Apple is the iPhone, because that's another huge part of this same story with the the uh, success of the iPod leading to the leading to the success of the iPhone. And, you know, my friend Greg Noss, who I went to college with, so I've known him even longer than I've known you both. He, he <laughs> said to me a few years ago, you know, I remember Apple being that that company that was like it was kind of adorable because they've tried so hard. <laughs> And now they're like the Death Star. They uh, they own everything and can afford everything, and uh, they are everywhere, and you can't get away from them. And isn't it funny to in fifteen years have gone from Death's Door to Apple being seen as the you know not the underdog at all, but one of the one of the the big guys, one of the big dogs, I suppose. It's interesting when you hang out with civilians as much as I do, because back in the day when we were talking about well. Most people use Windows and some people use the Mac. And so my Mac using friends, of course, were all on board. But most of the people I knew in my life were like, oh, isn't it cute that you use a Macintosh? It's so adorable. you know. <laughs> and then and now there's so much awareness of Apple as a company in the broader culture. People know what an Apple keynote is. People know Tim Cook's name, who I would argue a lot of people knew Steve Jobs, uh, but later on in his tenure. And I, I think Apple as a phenomenon, as a cultural force, and it frankly, m- more lately, is getting sort of wrapped up with a lot of the negativity of tech in general. It It is very, very different. And it is so weird to have been in this sort of weird underdog place where you were going, hey, I, I like my team. I like being part of this sort of scrappy upstart. <laughs> and what are they going to do next to... No, really. Apple's the one that cares about your privacy. They're not as bad as the other guys, whoever those other guys might be. And it's 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 a very odd transition. <laughs> yeah, they're they're uh, it's uh, when you grow up with Apple as I did, and I'm sure you guys did, like with with Apple two, two plus or two e. 
um, you hear the story about the two hippies in the in the garage who are building these computers, and that's sometimes a hard thing to get rid of in your mind when you realize that no, they own so many, <laughs> they own so much of the of so many markets. They have so much power and so much influence. They are not the scrappy little upstart. They are a huge. They are. They are. They are. They are a huge giant. They take big steps and they disrupt every every uh, situation that they walk in simply by being there. And uh, this was. And it was really uh, <laughs> hard to remember a day when uh, the, the only time that I've ever directly confronted uh, another tech journalist to tell him specifically that. His reporting was completely out of line and unworthy of him was a major, major reviewer who I think he a major, major columnist who reviewed the, the I think it was might have been the first titanium power book. And if, if it was a 1200 word review, 300 words were about the, the, what the actual product was and the actual hardware was and the actual plan for the, uh, for the hardware. And the rest of it was, but none of this matters because they're going to they're be out in business in three months. Like, well, of course, at, at $2,000, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it'd be stupid to invest this much money on a platform that won't be around in a year from now. Uh, and now they, uh, how, uh, would you dare tell, <laughs> they, they can, they can keep, they can keep any product they want alive for however long they they want it simply by force of will that is the that is the absolute goal of any corporation to be able to control its own destiny and apple is one of the few companies that absolutely controls its own destiny it does not do anything it does not want to do and conversely anything that it does not do they could do it if they wanted to if they're not doing it, it's because they don't want to do it that's how big they are Right. And I would argue, getting just a little bit to what I said before about them sort of getting wrapped up in the criticism of tech, I I would get wrapped up. I I would say that Apple, whatever the merits of their approach to privacy and user information, whether you absolutely agree that they are protecting your privacy 100 percent of the time or whether you have mistrust for them, they operate in a slightly different way than other companies who are in that same in the same business. And I think that there is a tendency for uh, people, politicians particularly, to say, here are all the bad actors, here are all the, ba- the actors that we want to regulate, and Apple's included because Apple is a big dog, not so much to do with what Apple is actually doing or how they're doing it, but because they are, they are not at all a scrappy underdog. In fact, they're probably... Even if you don't, if you, they're probably the first company many people think of when they're trying to, you know, wrangle this big thing called tech that people are now much more suspicious of than they were even ten years ago. So when we do the tech industry pivot, which we're about to do, I think these are the these are the things to keep in mind. It's sort of like Apple's going through transitions now, and we'll be going to them uh, soon, possibly in a different place. As Andy said, as a company at the height of its powers that can do whatever it wants, essentially, uh, in terms of spending money for certain. Um, And also, this is a company whose priorities are different as well over half of its revenue comes from a single product line, and it's not the Mac, it's the iPhone. Um, Mm. And so then we end up with these uh, transitions that are going on. So when you think about something like Catalyst, Catalyst is on one level a developer technology that users don't necessarily need to care about, but it is Apple's attempt 
to figure out a way to get all of the work that's been done building software for iPhone and iPad to benefit the Mac because the Mac uses an incompatible method of developing apps. Um, there's Swift and Swift UI behind that, which is the way to create a new method of writing software that is more easily deployable across all of Apple's platforms down the road. And another one that I'll throw in there is this rumored transition, at least in part, to Macs running ARM processors designed by Apple, like the ones that are in iOS devices. And I think that is what struck me when Andy said, you know, they can spend money to do what they want. Um, One of the transitions we haven't talked about, but it feeds into this idea of the Mac transitioning to ARM, is Apple transitioning to designing its own processors for the iPhone and the iPad, uh, where originally it was taking things kind of off the off the shelf arm designs. And now it's got this that that's a case where it spent a lot of money and has been very successful in building its own thing, which it controls completely, as opposed to having to rely on a partner like Intel that has proven to uh, be problematic in terms of their capability to drive their technology forward. So, you know, we have here we have Apple at the height of its powers. making these these transitions and we don't know how they're going to turn out because uh, we don't have the power we can we have the power to look in the past from our vantage point on this <laughs> corner but we don't know what ha- what's in this new parade that is that is about to start marching in front of us so i i would love to know what you both think about like the the transitions that are in process and ahead for apple and how apple is most likely knowing what we know about apple and transitions how 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 it's going to handle it. The ARM thing is interesting to me because Apple, obviously their position in the marketplace and the amount of money that they have is what makes it possible for them to control their destiny in that way. They couldn't have done that when they made the 68K to PowerPC transition, even though they were part of the PowerPC alliance. They couldn't have done that when they were putting Intel processors into Macs, which were a very small portion of the the computer market overall. But now they can, and it totally makes sense that they do. And, And frankly, I don't, unless the chips end up being a bad fit for Macs unless Catalyst and Swift UI don't work in terms of making apps properly cross-platform. I just don't see a downside. It seems like owning the means of production, so to speak, and, and being able to design those chips can only go wrong if they make some catastrophic mistakes. Yeah, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm really excited about uh, the switch to ARM. I don't I don't at this point understand. If uh, I don't understand how Apple could make ARM processors that can do what they need a professional Mac to do, so I th- believe that it would be a two-chip uh, sort of uh, family. But that aside, one of the reasons why iPhones are so amazing and iPads are so amazing is that they design a CPU to work uh, intimately with every other piece of the hardware that's on that device and also every other thing that's running on that operating system and every other API that uh, that developers are using. And so when you when you uh, a generic solution is never going to be as efficient as a bespoke one. So when you have a generic Intel processor as amazing as these things are, they are not specifically tuned to run uh, iPad OS. Uh, and they're not specifically tuned to run on a phone. When you have uh, a, a CPU that's designed for uh, augmented reality, when it's designed for the exact 
type of ways that uh, iPadOS handles uh, user interface, uh, that's where you get super speed and super power. And that's why you, Apple can sell a $300 iPad that is as responsive as many $1,000 Windows, uh, Windows Intel notebooks. So I'm really keen to see how they can design uh, a MacBook, a, a consumer-level MacBook that, yes, of course, will hopefully be lower power, longer life, all that sort of stuff, but also what new features they can introduce to the operating system and the hardware that takes advantage of that level of intimacy as far as the other stuff it's uh, i'm uh, i haven't seen a lot of uh evidence externally that apple is as passionate about the mac as they are about uh, their ios devices and uh internally i also don't feel as though i've heard a lot from inside apple that they feel as though that their flagship, their 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 standard of how good Apple can be at developing technology. I don't think they feel as though they express that through the Mac. I feel as though they express that through uh, their mobile devices, uh, and I think I think that's I think that's true partly because. Every time that they trump on how much thought and how much work they've done in making this amazing new Macintosh, it's usually about, and look how great this is going to be at developing content and apps for iOS devices, as opposed to we are going to make the greatest laptop a student has ever used or or a regular consumer has ever used. So when I look at Catalyst, when I look at the move to SwiftUI, I'm hopeful that it's not a way to tell iOS developers that, oh, and by the way, if you want to bounce off a Mac copy of that app, by all means, do that, and it won't have you won't be running in a virtual uh, virtual iPad. It will actually have drop down menus and stuff. Uh, I hope that it's uh, to make sure that if a developer invests uh, time, thought, and creativity in developing something for one platform, they could apply uh, a new, fresh set of create- creative decisions to making that into a Mac app without having to learn Objective-C if they didn't learn Objective-C or learn how uh, another set of APIs for user interface works. So I'm a little bit hesitant about it, but it looks like a very, very impressive move forward. Well, I, I would agree with a lot of what Andy said. And as, as he was talking, I was thinking about the degree to which iOS is still a growing, evolving thing. And I, as a Mac-first person, still think the Mac is, ha, is is the easier system to use, not because it's simple, but because the thing the, the hooks are there. It's mature. It, it does all the things you want to do. To use iOS productively... 100% of the time would involve, for me, a lot of jumping through hoops. And that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with iOS. It means iOS is still growing and developing and evolving, and that there's lots of room for that to happen. So that's where their energy is going to be. And I'm not saying that's right as somebody who would prefer to see the Mac continue to grow and develop and evolve. I'd like to see them evolve together. But I think it's natural that making iOS do as much as the Mac can do and finding it Finding ways for it to do more and different things than the Mac can do is kind of where Apple's, you know, real creativity and real brain power has to be. And that's where we're going to continue to be wowed from here on out. And I've said before, I, I think the the arm chip thing is, is a no-lose situation for them. It'll be interesting to see how they uh, do that on the desktop and on the laptop. But um, I, I just I feel like there's so much more to happen for iOS, including those technologies like augmented reality and uh, and others that are really in their infancy. There's just there's like so much out there. I, f- I feel like sometimes it's hard to see more than the thing you want in the next year, the little feature that would make your life better. But I feel like in iOS, because there are so many new technologies that really haven't become 
usable in a practical everyday sense because there's so many that are still out there growing that I think they still have the ability to surprise and amaze us with iOS. We talk about transitions. I think there was an invisible transition that happened a couple of years ago. And Mike and I have talked about this a little bit on this show before. The idea that Apple seemed to have come to the conclusion that the Mac was going to just kind of get pushed out on an ice flow. And Mm. as long as it could float, it would be alive. But that, you know, it and its user base would just kind of like get older and fade away. (laughs) And (laughs) a couple years ago, they seem to have made an internal transition where they said, okay, instead, what we're going to do is we're going to bring the Mac kind of into the fold in terms of our product development and our our software platforms. And and that's the root of Catalyst. Um, It is the idea that SwiftUI will let you build apps that will run on the Mac. You'll be able to do a version that'll run on on iPads and Apple Watches and, you know, wherever else you want to put them and that they're going to, you know, that's where the new Mac Pro came from and and other kind of things where they seem to have changed their tune a little bit, which I find kind of fascinating because, you know, the story of this current era of technology really is about sort of um, what cards you've been dealt. And so from Microsoft's perspective, they missed the boat in terms of the mobile revolution and so are building toward the future from windows and so we see touch interfaces on windows and we see convertible pcs which you know apple isn't doing because apple's cards dealt it this hand that is the iphone this incredibly successful product possibly the most successful individual product of our lifetimes um forward and backward um but it also has the mac which is like a joker kind of where it's like why <laughs> i also have this thing over here but this is not our strategy our strategy is this this over here and and i'm always fascinated at seeing how microsoft and apple approach this kind of thing because they they're approaching i think maybe the same thing from two completely different sides because it's where their strength lies and they have to build from there and i am fascinated by the idea that i really wonder what they thought the end game for the mac was before because it seems now like they're going to give the mac the big hug where the mac is not going to it's going to feel more like ios than it used to but it's still going to be part of the of the whole picture when the alternative was for them to just sort of say well the mac is what it is and it'll just kind of go on but it's not going to be interesting um and we're not going to focus on it and uh i don't know if that's good or bad but it does seem like they made that change i think in the end it means the mac will survive a lot longer but it may not be what we think of as the mac yeah th- i think the the problem is that uh, you look at what's been happening in uh, windows hardware and software uh, and how they've created entirely new categories of laptops uh, and uh, how what google has done with chrome os which was uh, it was it was uh, as laughable and funny and and ridiculous a product as the original mac was but it felt it feels like it it's it felt this it made the same trajectory where like oh well now that it doesn't stink the core concept is actually really really good and and in many ways it's actually outperforming for me uh stuff that i've uh, stuff that i've got going on in my $2000 macbook and you wonder well okay that's great now let's turn to macOS what is better about my mac 
today than it was five years ago. And are they doing incredible new form factors like uh, like a, a, a two in one yoga style convertible where I can actually tent it up and use it just as a as a display with the keyboard out of the way? No. Well, have they done really uh, incredible user interface uh, revolutions and tweaks? Like, no. Mostly they've taken mostly when they add new features during the keynote, they mention how they are now your iOS gestures and your iOS window tiling and this other feature that we've renamed from we've kept the same name from iOS is now available on macOS. It's it's I have to I have to say that it's a very frumpy looking and frumpy behaving uh, operating system at this point. I know that they've done, made amazing changes under the hood, mostly uh, long needed improvements to architecture. So it's not as though it's been stagnant. But I can't remember the last time there was something about the operating system that got me really excited about what I will be able to do with this Mac that I was not able to do before. Whereas. Uh, I've had uh, on other platforms many situations like that. Where I feel it's like, like that about the iPad all the time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and on the Mac, it's the Mac, and it's and it's it's fine. But I do wonder if Apple is actually cutting off interesting areas of uh, exploration because it's got the Mac and the i. Like Apple doesn't make a yeah. convertible, right? They make an iPad with a, a keyboard case. But no pointing device. Well, now it's going to be like limited pointing device support. And they make a laptop with a screen that you can't remove. But Microsoft and partners are tinkering in the middle zone. And because of these these barriers that Apple has formed between its, their product lines, they're just sort of isn't something there. And it's I, if, I feel like it's kind of a shame. Like I, I would yeah. I've said I, I would love to see an iOS laptop. I would love to see a Mac convertible. I'd love to see a Mac with a touchscreen. But I'm unclear on 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 what, what transitions Apple considers good ideas and what ones they consider kind of bad ideas slash heresy. I don't know. Yeah, and even even the new hardware that they have tends to hark back to old hardware. I mean, you could be very simplistic and say the Mac Pro harks back to the cheese grater, which, as I say, is entirely too simplistic. But the Mac Mini that everybody is so fond of that came out last year, it's a better version of the previous Mac Mini. Though the computers that have had problems have been the laptops, where they've actually tried to innovate in some way or move move people forward in terms of their expectations of laptops. And there, were, there have been a lot of problems, whether you talk about the keyboard or whether you talk about the balance of ports. I, I don't feel like Apple is having a good experience with laptops and the computers that they, they do seem to be you know, doing well and firing on all, all cylinders are things like the iMac and the Mac Mini that are actually quite old designs. Yeah, I, I just don't feel as though Apple is. I, I don't think that Apple is embarrassed about the Mac. I don't think that they're trying to ignore it. I just think that you can always tell when somebody is passionate about something and somebody is simply responsible about something. Where they, def- I think that Apple is passionate about the about iOS. I think that they are. They've got their egos invested in it. That this is what we haul out to show people how we are doing something that no one else could possibly do, and this is being done as well as anybody can possibly be doing it, if not better. Mac is like, and we have a laptop. And it works really, really well. It's very, very secure. It's designed very, very well. It's a, it's a, it's a very nice design. But they're not going to point to that to say when, when they when when they invite someone into their rec room, that's not the, the display case they lead people to. They lead people to the display case of iPads yeah. and the iPad and the and the Mac. Oh well, yeah, we have a couple of those too. But yeah. all right, um, I want to do before we go. I, I have a special upstream topic that is something that I've been holding for a while, and I think that you would be perfect people to talk to it about. Uh, but before we do that, we do have one more sponsor, if Mike Hurley is out there. <laughs> of course I am. 
Of course I am. I'm playing the role of the listener, the, the oh. advanced listener of this. Oh, episode, excellent. You know? Excellent. Thank you for doing that. You're all doing a great job, by the way. He'll be sending his, in his snail talk question in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll be, I'll be writing out the episode. Don't worry. Today's episode is brought to you by Lumen5. Snappy videos on social media are a fun, fast way to digest your favorite content. And if you're producing content of any kind, this is probably something you should be thinking about, right? So what are you going to do? If you want to share maybe a tweet or on Instagram and you have a video that you want to share, what are you going to do? You're going to carve out a few hours of your day to plan and edit and learn how to, to make these videos. You could go through a recruiting process. You could hire a freelancer. But these options cost a lot of time and money, which is why you should look at Lumen5. It lets you make shareable short-form videos in minutes and takes the stress out of that video creation. By using AI and machine learning to pick out and summarize the most important parts of an article, a blog post, or whatever it is you want to turn into video. Once you've got the important text, you can pair it with some attention-grabbing pictures and videos, and then you can package it all up and share it. Luma5 knows that you don't have hours to source individual photos and videos, which is why they have a library of millions of media files for you to use. I have always wondered how these videos were made. So, like, you know, if you're, you're on a social network and you see, like, uh, a big publisher, they've turned an, an article into a video and they're sharing it. Because I've always figured, like, oh, this must take hours to make. Because it seems like this stuff is really well produced. So when Luma5 got in touch and they gave me a demo of their platform and I made a video of my own, I was like blown away at how easy it was because it would be too difficult to be able to spend hours in a video editing production suite making something like this. Well, this is a tool to help you do it yourself. So start creating your thumb-stopping, attention-grabbing videos today. Right now, Luma5 have a special offer for listeners of this show. If you go to L-U-M-E, en and the number five dot com slash upgrade you'll get 50 percent of your first month that's lumen five l-u-m-e-n the number five dot com slash upgrade for 50 percent off go there now it is so much easier than traditional video editing that is lumen five dot com slash upgrade our thanks to lumen five for their support of this show and relay fm all right, Mike, it's time for Upstream. We usually do that at My the beginning. Favorite. And now it's at the end. Mm-hmm. It's because it's a special <laughs> summer of fun. Everything's wild in the summer of fun. It's all here, but it's all in a different way. And this is a topic, I think I originally was going to do this with John Syracuse, and we ran out of time, and it's been sitting in our show document for a long time. But I think it is a fun topic, and I know that uh, Andy and Shelley are people who have opinions about this. And Mike, you probably do too. Uh, and it mm-hmm. started with Harry McCracken back in April. My uh, colleague from uh, he was my he was the PC World editor in chief when I was the Mac World editor in chief. Um, he uh, linked to a story about why 2.7 million Americans still get Netflix DVDs in the mail. Uh, and what Harry said was, when streaming emerged, I thought it would lead to just about everything ever done being readily uh, readily available. But I've been gravely disappointed. And I, you know, I thought about this for a while about how. Uh, we think about, and when I do episodes of The Incomparable, this comes a lot up a lot, where we do episodes about, like last week on this show, we talked about Kiki's Delivery Service, which is not available for streaming. It is not available for digital purchase. You have to buy the Blu-ray or the DVD. That's how you get it. And there are a lot of movies that are out of print or they're only available on disc. And, and while there are places that are collecting movies that are either out of print or going out of print, like um, my friend Monty Ashley always talks up Scarecrow Video in Seattle, which is basically not just a video store, but a museum of film and TV and other video things. There's just so much stuff that's not available on Netflix or in other screen, streaming service. And I'm starting to wonder if 
if you're not on streaming, if you're just lost. And Miyazaki, again, is an example. A lot of classic movies, a lot of great old TV shows, a lot of movies that don't have a clear rights holder, um, stuff from Broadway. There's so many things. Some of it is caught up in rights issues, but it becomes... Uh, really difficult when I want to talk about a movie or a TV show and everybody says, well, I can't, I can't listen to that episode. I can't listen to your conversation because I can't click one button and watch whatever that thing is. And it frustrates me because there's a lot of great stuff up there that or out there that is not streaming. And I, I worry that it's all kind of, uh, fading away. And I'll also mention as an aside, um, I actually saved a bunch of VHS tapes, from my teenage years of primarily of uh, David Letterman shows and found out that um, by the time I had a setup where I was going to digitize those and put them up somewhere that all of them were basically on YouTube already. And thanks to the guy named uh, Don Giller, who basically has digitized Don Z. Don Z. He (laughs) has uh, digitized like everything. Literally. uh, uh, Let's let's make sure people are clear about this. Literally everything. And I mean the literal version of literally. Like so much so that when people on staff at the Letterman show and and now former members of the staff need a clip, they come to Don Z. There was a documentary about uh, uh, bathrooms over Broadway, I think it was, about uh, uh, about the, the Letterman writer who did all the uh, uh who did all the uh, uh the, the 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 record col- dave's record collection would have like really weird institutional and business musicals they had clips from the show that they got they could only get from don z that's how exhaustive it is yeah sorry and and no it, it's amazing and we'll much put, respect we'll put don don's uh blog and there's a new york times piece about it that he has done this uh it is amazing of course technically copyright violation right it's not he doesn't own the copyright on any of this stuff and yet he's the one who is making sure that it doesn't fade into oblivion because nbc doesn't care uh, especially about the stuff you know th- th- maybe david letterman's uh, production company cares a little bit more maybe not i don't know but nbc for the early stuff he doesn't care i'm reminded of another story i read in the new york times back in march about this guy who um, obsessively taped boxing matches on vhs and for a mm-hmm. long time the entire boxing industry would come over to his apartment apartment and borrow his tapes and he would write on little cards and he he passed away like five years ago and his wife is still taping boxing matches uh to keep the archive going but as things get digitized it's uh it's less and less used and she's trying to find someone who will take it away and I, i look at that story and i think this is the other part of it is sure one person can uh make a ridiculous effort to save stuff for the future but in the end, when they go away, for whatever reason, they pass away, they decide they don't want to do it anymore, what happens to this stuff? And I don't know, I just find it I just find it kind of disturbing that in this, yes, we are in an era of plenty where there is more great television being made than ever before. And there's a huge amount of content accessible to all of us with the click of a button. Um, I do wonder about all the stuff that's falling through the cracks. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. It's uh, I do believe that copyright is important. I believe that copyright uh, paying the people who create stuff 
uh, is important. I don't believe that you should be a Johnny No Wanna Pay and just simply say, well, because I can get this on uh, uh, on on a BitTorrent, uh, that means that there's no reason for me to pay for this Blu-ray or to pay for this HBO subscription. I don't I don't believe that at all. However, there is there are a couple of ethical ex- ethical exceptions. I think that there are so many pieces of content like you described that if not for the fact that there are people who are pirating this stuff, it would just go away. Like my favorite example of this was, um, you know, the, the flying car Matsov brothers, like the juggling comedy troupe. So they came, they did a production at Lincoln center of the comedy Shakespeare's, the comedy of errors. And it was like all vaudeville, like all juggling, all, all, all wire walking, funny as hell, amazing. Uh, and it aired on, uh, PBS's live at Lincoln center once because again it was a it was an actual production and they did a special like live airing of it according to uh, the the rules of course they didn't get they, they could only air it like once or twice and now you can't get it and it's on YouTube, <laughs> parts one and part two. Well, I'll, I'll include the links to them uh, and. When you see this, you would think that I don't think that whoever it was who uh, digitized this and posted it did anything wrong. They did something important and noble because this thing would have died. It would nobody would know it exists if not for the fact that someone someone stole it. And uh, uh, Smerdyakov Karamazov, uh, Sam Williams was a was a friend of mine, one of the original members of the Karamazovs, and he was actually very he was actually very very pleased that uh, DVD copies. VHS copies were becoming DVD copies, and I think he passed away just as YouTube was becoming really, really big. And I knew that he, as one of the performers in there, he could not give permission for this, but he was happy that people were able to see this. And so uh, it's it's amazing to me that how ephemeral this content can be, even something as impressive as the Flying Car Marcel Brothers doing the Comedy of Errors. I, would, I don't want to recommend it to people. I want to, people to be able to click a link and actually watch it. Where to begin? Uh, I, I've collected classic films forever, and I, I love them, and I have watched them wherever I could. I have bought every opportunity there was. I have looked at all the streaming services to see what and what, what was and wasn't available. The thing about a lot of classic movies is they are just plain out of print. There are extremely complicated rights issues having to do with the fact that the companies that made the films have been bought and sold and merged and you know, concatenated and the, the whole thing. And so uh, I, if, you, if you give me the name in the studio that made a movie, I can tell you who owned it. And the chances are very small that it's the same people who made it. And the people who then own it don't necessarily have any interest in create in cleaning it up and making it the kind of quality that would it would need for uh, streaming release. Uh, there are people who are out there, you know, doing the Lord's work, restoring films or facilitating the restoration of films, finding films in foreign countries, reels of film, and taking them to the USA UCLA Film Archive and saying, hey, could you please help us restore this? Oh, if you raise the money, we'll do that. And then they take them back to the rights holder and they say, well, we've done this really cool restoration of your film. Could we now strike a DVD? Well, no. Because either the rights are contested or the people who own the film don't feel there's a financial incentive for them to do it, even if a lot of the work has been taken care of. So basically what I've done is behave like a little squirrel. And every time I see something that I want, I keep it. And it can be DVDs. It can be, you know, I've, I've DVR'd 
thousands of movies from Turner Classic Movies because that's my preferred. Uh, that's a lot of the stuff I like is from there. And and you will be shocked at what's on TCM that's not on video because apparently oh, yeah. there are contracts that allow things to be shown on TV that allow them <laughs> to be shown on cable TV but not streamed because that's not in the contract. Not streamed nor yeah. put onto DVD. Yeah. And and sometimes what'll happen is TCM will show a movie and you'll think, oh well, that's a TCM movie. I can see that again. And then if you ask them, if you said, you know, I, I saw that movie, I saw Desk Set that I really liked. Uh, I'd like to see that again. When are you going to play it? They say, well, we, we're going to have rights to it again in five years because yep. even even for showing it on cable, the rights don't necessarily continue. So it's it's and I that I guess has a lot to do with why I've had a mistrustful relationship with streaming. And I've always believed that instead of having every streaming service so I could have access to everything I wanted in theory, that I was just going to take subscriptions to the streaming services that had what I wanted now and never assume that I was going to be able to watch it ever again. And I think that's the only healthy way to to behave for what I want, especially in light, you know, look what's going to happen later this year. We have Warners who killed uh, Warner Archive and who killed the, uh, the, the previous incarnation of their streaming service and they're now going to create some sort of giant bundle thing because they want to leverage the back catalog that's still saleable the the you know the, the far more current movies so if you have an art house movie if it's a great classic it might end up on criterion or it might not and just never assuming that something is going to be available tomorrow that you saw today is the only way i can you know continue to enjoy movies <laughs> yeah abso- absolutely like you see those blog posts constantly of like what's coming off netflix this month right like and then where does it go who knows yeah but that, see that that's exactly the problem it's like uh there there are movies that i love so much that i don't want to ever lose access to them and that's why so often that's, that's why i buy a lot of dvds and i buy a lot of blu-rays because i don't want to lose access to uh to to airplane i don't want to ever lose access uh to uh, uh john woo the, the killer okay i don't i don't want to ever have to uh, uh, or the abyss which has never been which is still we're still mm-hmm. waiting for that wonderful 4k restoration one of my favorite movies ever uh, and let's also talk about babylon 5 that's been an amazing uh, epic tv series but that warner brothers just doesn't seems to actively not care not not care about they actively are disinterested in it they actively are saying we could if you if you take this quarter i'm gonna give you this quarter move it from this glass to this glass i'm gonna put the two glasses in front of you and that will cause babylon 5 to be available to people they would not even take that they effort. may break the glasses <laughs> at that point right exactly they they, they <laughs> so actively don't care about it and so if i don't buy the dvds and if i don't rip the dvds into files so i can put it on my file server it just does it just doesn't that's no good and that's another reason why one of my favorite apps ever is an app called downy for for mac os and no matter pretty much no matter what is streaming in your web browser it's a browser your plugin and you click on this button and it does everything for you it'll figure out from what service you're streaming from uh, and capture and find the original mp4 file and just download it to a file and i use this on uh, stuff that is on youtube that maybe shouldn't be on youtube i do that all the time because thank goodness i get this this made for tv movie starring the stars of the producers <laughs> As in a in a in a comedy about how, about a disease that turns people temporarily into rhinoceroses, and that has never come to DVD. 
And that's not going to be remade with with a uh, with new cast of characters. If you don't, so at some point, someone's going to notice who uh, some some algorithm uh, run by a movie studio is going to notice the thing is up there and it's going to disappear. And that's when I'm glad that not only did I watch this, I also clicked that button and had Downey make me a copy of it. It's not legal, but I believe it's ethically. I don't have an ethical problem with it. And the irony is that Warner Brothers, at least at the moment, notwithstanding what I said about their streaming service, they have been one of the better ones about back catalog. And companies like Fox, companies like Paramount have ju- – I mean, I'm talking about really ancient back catalog. But even the Babylon 5 thing surprises me, and I'm not in that loop. And, I, and they've a, restored it, all it, sorts of yeah. crazy TV series from the 70s and it's 80s. It's a politics because it wasn't made by the core TV business. It was made by their syndication right. arm, and therefore the core TV business doesn't want anything to do with it. Got it. That's the, Got it. That's that the story sense. there. But you're right. I, I have been thinking for a long time, and I know I've talked about this with Mike, that in the end – I feel like a lot of the older content is going to go somewhere because I do think there's a niche streaming service that could be successful serving older movies and older TV shows. But we aren't there. We live in a world where all the money is going toward creating more original content for new services and the rest of it is just sort of like floating out there. But I do really believe that and I want to believe it. Maybe I'm wish casting a little because it does <laughs> I feel like we didn't learn the lesson of of every previous transition to a new medium or to a new storage medium or transmission transfer medium whatever you want to put it as of like losing stuff and you'll be like oh those silly people back in the day who uh put their film stock or put their films on uh flammable film stock and then didn't take proper care of it (laughs) but then there's the oh those silly people at the bbc who uh, erased all of their videotapes of doctor who because it wasn't going to be worth anything and uh, by the way those episodes exist now in large part because of fans yep right again it's the youtube story except back in the 70s it was fans taping shows off of off of uh off air on vhs or beta or even before that fans taping the audio using just audio cassette tapes is the reason any of that stuff survives so it's very similar to today's youtube kind of uh kind of thing and you know but in the end are we not there already that that a lot of this stuff is going to just fade away. And unless you happen to grab a copy and have it in the kind of digital underground, it's just gone. And nothing frustrates me more than coming up with a great movie or TV show to talk about on The Incomparable, for example, and realizing we can't talk about it because nobody can get it. Or at least not, you know, you could get a used DVD of it, but you can't get it on in HD and you can't get it on streaming and you can't buy it on iTunes. And so it might as well be invisible. I talked to a guy for one of my parallel shows about right about the time that uh, the the Warner streaming service stuff happened last year. And we were talking because he had done a film festival on TCM about disability in film. And I said, where did you get some of the films you had? Because they were really incredibly rare, incredibly hard to find. He said, well, the way I got access to see them was I know a lot of collectors. And there was a lot of exchanging back and forth that wasn't strictly legal so that he could view the movies and decide whether they went in the festival. And then he had to present this list to TCM and say, here's the film I want to show. How many of these can you get me? And I think it, it was two years before he actually got the festival on the, on the air that it took them to resolve all the rights. There were a couple that he didn't eventually, they didn't at all get to show. And this is TCM. They've got a team of lawyers that does nothing but rights issues. But he still couldn't get those shown. And he's got another list, which if he ever does this festival again, he's going to add. And so it's 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 incredibly difficult and it's incredibly challenging. Like I say, this is a guy who collects film, who 
didn't have access to the things he needed to see in order to create a new work of art that would explain film to new generations. Yeah. How, what, what percentage of movies before 1922 are considered lost? It's, it's a stag, It's an impressively large number where you'll see not, not just some home movie stuff, but here's the biggest star of the day on one of the most uh, uh, profitable movies of that of 1921. And you see, oh, wow, where is it? Like, no, it's lost. Oh, wow. So it's so, so I have to go to a university archive? No, it, there is no, no copy known to exist. It's, it's the nitrate film, and it's also that people didn't see their value, and a lot of copies right. got thrown away. And a surprising number of films made after 1930, which is essentially when the silent transition happened, are gone or partially gone. And that's the, the restoration stories that I find fascinating is when you have people like the Film Noir Foundation that go out and they say, I want to restore this movie. And they scour collectors all over the world. They find And they'll say, well, I found this reel in a vault in Italy. And I found that the studio had this reel. And we combined them together. And we raised a bunch of money. And we got the UCLA Film Archive to actually do the painstaking digital restoration. And that's the only reason this thing is available on DVD or, or Blu-ray. And then it's you know, don't not even to mention things like showing theatrically, which is a whole separate thing. You know, revivals ha- houses have difficulty getting more than a sort of standard set of classics that we've all seen a hundred times, or those of us who pay attention to classics have seen a hundred times. It's really hard to get those restorations that are theatrical quality. Also, the danger of keeping things in the vault. And I will put a link in the show notes to the uh, New York Times piece about the uh, Universal Audio Archive fire. Ah, yeah, I read that. Where all the master recordings were destroyed in in this fire. That's the danger of keeping something in the vault and not letting it out to the world, is that if you keep it in the vault, you might lose the master, but at least you will have saved something. But if you keep it in the vault and then the vault burns down, you keep it on a, uh, you're on a, a archival DVD and the bit rod happens, your hard drive crashes your server melts down and the backup turns out to have been faulty. Uh, the more you spread this stuff around, the more likely it's not going to become lost forever. Um, and, and that is, I mean, Shelley, you mentioned about finding movies in weird places. I think they found, what was it? Was it the front page? It ended up being like there's an entirely different version with the better takes. And we've been watching the version with the bad takes. Or was it, or was it His Girl Friday? Maybe it was His Girl Friday. I, I I'm can't. not sure. I, I don't know about that it, it one. Might, it might have been. And then, it, it, and then I, I would bet it was front page because that's an older no, movie. No, I think that's and the, right. And they did the international version and the U.S. version. The U.S. version got right. the uh, got the good takes. The international version got the bad takes. And the movie that everybody had been watching as a fan, a, a film fan for 50 years was the bad takes, the second takes, because the first takes was lost. And then somebody found it. And that's great because, you know, but that was also sheer luck. And I mentioned Doctor Who before. All the black and white Doctor Who really only exists because they put that on film and shipped it to Africa and the Middle East and to show on TV there. And those film canisters survived the purge. And that's also ridiculous and, and luck. And you've lost a lot of a lot of stuff. So my, my I think all of our point here is it is a point of frustration that we live in this world of plenty. And yet there's all this stuff that for legal reasons, for intransigent owners of the content reasons uh, are languishing. And I don't want to live in a world where if it's not available on streaming, it doesn't exist. But I'm concerned that that's the world we live in already. Yeah. It's it's about uh, this is our heritage, this is our culture, and it disappears unless it is honored, unless it is preserved, just as we say. It's uh, it's 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 distressing but the there is another piece of hope in here in that uh even 10 years ago i don't think anybody could have imagined the 
power that would be in the hands of just individual, really motivated fans. The the ability to create an HD version of the original release cut of uh, of Star Wars Episode Four uh, that uh, just from I, all we have are crappy thirty five millimeter prints, but we're going to source them the best the best cuts from all these prints that we can get from collectors, and then we are going to by hand by basically crowdsourcing a hundred frames at a time people uh, people getting rid of scratches getting rid of cuts and then the scholarship of oh actually this is this doesn't have the original uh, crawl the original crawl didn't have the series title on it and the ability to have this actually almost i would say with the color grading and everything a really commercially grade 1080 uh, blu-ray type of release of the original star wars that has not been modified or messed with uh with a, with with future cuts and yep it's illegal nope there's no there's no <laughs> there's no legally defensive way but again i have this file on my server which is backed up in many places because if i want to see star wars as i believe that it exists which is the way that i first saw it that is my only option and i feel like i'm helping to save humanity a little bit just by just by 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 uh, participating in the piracy. And related to that, the fact that we have such greater capacity than before, because people were transmitting a re- initial, people were transmitting single movies on single VHS tapes and old time radio shows on single half hour cassettes. And now you can put dozens and dozens and hundreds of radio shows onto a Blu-ray disc and transfer it easily. You have YouTube out there. You have mm-hmm. You have enormous hard drives, which must be backed up and must be archived offsite and all that stuff. But you do have the capability of moving large enough volumes of stuff around that it makes it's possible for an individual collector to amass a pretty respectable set of files that they care about. Yep. I just upgraded my four terabyte NAS. I'm sorry, my eight terabyte NAS to a larger NAS because I'm slow with with, with archiving all of my CDs and all of my downloaded files and all of the Blu-rays and DVDs that I've ripped. I didn't think I'd run out of space four years ago, but I'm running out of space, and now I have to back up that as well because if this ever went away, I would be very very mm-hmm. sad because this is this is a video store. This is Netflix for Andy. <laughs> this is this is like I would pay ten dollars a month for Netflix for Andy, but it doesn't exist, so I have to have this box with a Synology logo on it <laughs> and a couple of yeah, we, backups. We, we kind of have that, and, and sometimes what I'll do to watch a movie is I'll just hit random. It's the greatest feeling in the world, because I know everything on there is something that I collected for a reason, and yeah. if, you know, 4,000 yes. films or whatever I have, I might not even feel like watching the first thing it comes up with, but the idea that I have that many choices that are tailored to my tastes and interests is, is very cool. It's cost me a lot of money and time to yeah, do it, well, but I'm yeah. glad I did. Well, you got you got to you have to enjoy being a librarian. I find I, I kind of enjoy being the curator. I enjoy when I when I rip a CD to not only say this look. This is Joyce DiNonato's picture on the front of the DV- on the CD. It says Joyce DiNonato and then a title of the album. The fact that she did one one duet on this album does not make it a compilation of various artists. I'm fixing that. Mm. <laughs> well, I think we've reached the end of this very special episode. This has been a fun conversation. I want to thank Mike for uh, for being here and making it special. Andy Anaka, thank you for being here. <laughs> Oh, always great to be in podcast with two of my oldest, <laughs> oldest tech, tech, tech <laughs> friends. 
He's not talking about Mike, I think. <laughs> uh, Shelly Brisbane, thank you, too. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I rarely get the chance to shake my virtual finger at the sky about old movies, and that it pleases me to be able to do that. And old Max, too. And if there are kids <laughs> on our lawn, get off. Yes. Get off. Just <laughs> come on. And Mike, you, too. You get off our lawn. All right. Well... <laughs> Do you want me to do? Do you want me to just go now, or do you want me to do? The I think show you should. Say, I think up? you should wrap up the show first, and then get off my lawn. Okay, so I do a job for you, then I'll get mow off the my lawn, lawn and then get fine. off of it. Yeah, mow the lawn <laughs> and then get off it. If you want to find uh, links to this episode, including uh, links to all of Shelley and Andy's wonderful places that you can go and follow them online, including their Relay FM shows, you can go to relay.fm/slash/upgrade/slash/252. slash uh, You can find Jason at sixcolors.com as well. Uh, thank you so much to our wonderful sponsors of this week's episode, Lumina 5, Bombus, and Text Expander. And most of all, thank you for listening to this Summer of Fun special. Uh, we'll be back next week with another special guest, so that will be something for you all to look forward to. Um, until then, say goodbye, everybody. Toodles. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.